I'm matchmaker Maria, the founder of Agave Match. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions and interview experts to give you the tools to find or keep the love of your life. This is Ask a Matchmaker. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. On today's podcast, I speak to Tara Schuster. Tara Schuster is an accomplished entertainment executive turned mental health advocate and best-selling author. And on February 28th, She'll be releasing her highly anticipated new book, Glow in the Fucking Dark, Simple Practices to Heal Your Soul from Someone Who Learned the Hard Way. And you'll be able to pre-order it today. Go in the show notes. While you're there, go follow Tara Schuster on Instagram. Welcome, Tara, to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. So... You know, I've already gotten like a glimpse of the book and it's being described as like part memoir, part self-help. Tell me a little bit more about you and the memoir side of this book. Yeah. So, you know, in my first book, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies, it was basically, I just give a little context. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in a house where things came to die it was so chaotic. My parents didn't nurture anything like the pets, the plants. Yeah, it was not a good scene. Um, I'm picturing like a funeral home, but like that's well, not when people die. That's where you send them. Like, what do you mean? Like, I mean, a lot like, of people can't handle like plants. Multiple but. pets. Coco, the Himalayan cat. Our dog was kidnapped. Uh, the uh, All the birds died. Iggy, the iguana. The orchids that came free with purchase of the house, which was an orchid nursery, dead. The fig tree, the lemon. Like, I can go on and on. But wait, don't pets mm-hmm. like normally die in someone's home like i'm not that early oh okay they don't die of neglect got it and once you start having a house of like dying things you got to ask what's the common denominator um so it was a very neglectful household you know i was not you know i was not treated much better and i came the message i left my childhood with is i am worthless and i just that was the message. I had no idea how to take care of myself. And so I never set out to write self-help books. I needed to help myself. And so um, Lily's was, I started studying different therapies, different philosophies, taking advice from other people's parents and just writing it all down in a furious attempt to like figure it out. And Five years later, with a 600-page Google document, I felt a hell of a lot better. At what age do you feel like you were able to acknowledge that there was a problem? Like, you know, you mentioned neglect. At what, and you know, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but did you feel like you were neglected by your parents? Not in the beginning. In the beginning, you know, when you're a child, it just seems like everything's, this is just life. Right? This is your normal. 10 yeah. out of 10, fighting, screaming. This is mm-hmm. normal. Um, but by the when I got to college. College? I, yeah, it was in college because I made – I was so ashamed. I knew enough to be ashamed in high school and, and growing up that I never discussed anything with anybody. Like I would have never have told somebody 
you know, my house is being foreclosed on, the car was repossessed. I, I mean, it was Yikes. mayhem. <laughs> I just So I, in high school, you knew things were in disarray. Yeah, I, I knew I was not happy. And how did that look like for, you know, Tara, the high schooler? Like how, yeah, so, how did that spill over into like your day-to-day or your social community? So, you know, because I grew up in such a neglectful household where, you know, no one was asking me questions about what do you want to do? How, like nothing. I looked to school, to the adults okay. at school to, you know, take care of me. I was definitely the kid that tried to eat lunch with the teachers, mm. like full on uh, teacher's pet. And so that's how it looked was a ceaseless hustle to get good grades, to impress adults, to make it somewhere else, even though I wasn't exactly sure where someone else was. Do you have any siblings? I have a younger sister. Yeah. And how much younger? Five years. That's a big gap. Yeah. Like, so you don't even have like a, like a. No. Right. So. And in addition to that, my parents separated us when I, I was 12 and she was six. Yeah. Um, they decided it was, they had joint custody, but they were like, this is easier for us. And so they just like, nobody talked about like, well, then how are the sisters going to see each other or bond? So I felt desperately alone. I would say- At what distance did your sister move away with your other parent? Um, the valley. So like over a hill. But when you're that age, my sister couldn't drive. Right. It's Might a, as well it, be Mars. Exactly. It it's matter. not – yeah. So uh, it, so I felt like really, really alone looking to other adults to give me external validation, which became the linchpin to my soul. External validation was everything to me. Were you a, were you consider yourself like a people pleaser? Yes, for sure. People pleaser, um, perfectionist to a – um, disturbing, like to a very unhealthy degree, because I thought my life depended on it. You know, like because, when you mm-hmm. did you go to college? Yes, so that's so why you, in college, you, okay, I was no longer. I was like, okay, I'm gonna start talking about this to somebody. I now realize that was so not normal, and I started confiding in my college friends. And that's when I realized I would tell them stories and say, you know, is it normal that your dad told you that your finances were doomed and that he didn't know what he was going to do and that, you know, for like that he was in such credit card debt like every day? Like, did you hear like, was that a frequent thing you heard from your dad? My friends were like disturbed. Like, no, we never. That's even if things were tight, our parents told us we're going to get through it. You know, so it was like a big shock. So I'd reality test myself. Just was this normal? Was this normal? Was this normal? Um, it's like Hunger Games when Peter is <laughs> asking, "Do you know what I'm talking about?" No, I don't. I've seen oh, it, but I don't gets, remember. He gets brain like Peter at the like one of the last movies. He gets like brainwashed, and he comes back and he keeps asking Katniss, "Like, is this normal?" To figure out like which is reality and which is the brainwash. Oh, like that's, throughout the whole movie, he's that's like, "That's a great reference." Then. Is this real? Is yeah. this real? Yeah. So in college is when I kind of noticed and the way that all that neglect had manifested itself was I was hopelessly addicted to weed, like hopelessly 
utterly because it was the only way to disassociate from my memories and feelings was be sober during the day to get good mm-hmm. grades, smoke away reality at night because um, I can't handle this. I, I, I had no tools, zero tools for how to help myself. And you hadn't learned any coping strategies from your parents because I don't no. think they, it seems like they didn't have those. They For sure. So they had no coping mechanisms. I had no coping mechanisms. I just kept hustling. And so, yeah, I made it to an Ivy League college. I made What'd it to- What did you study? Uh, playwriting and history. Where did you go? Brown. That's a great place to study par- uh, playwriting. It's like yeah. the best one, isn't it? It's why I went there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. we've got the writer in us. All right. And yeah. then from there, um, I mean, you've done some pretty big things. Like you used to be a Comedy Central at arguably one of the best shows ever written, Key and Peele. Um, tell me a little bit more about like the journey out of college. Also, where's your sister in all this? My sister was living with my mom and then she had the exact same reaction I did. She went to Yale. Like it, <laughs> it was pretty like obvious what was happening. You know, in hindsight, I'm like, wait, so we both were such overachievers for sure it was for the same reason. You know, no one says this to parents, uh, like, uh, how to get your kid to Ivy League school. At no point, Melissa say, like, traumatize the shit out of your kids. <laughs> traumatize So that they them. become people-pleasing overachievers that who, go to Ivy League. Who, no, like, not on the list. need to escape by any means necessary, you know, as far away from home as possible on the right. other side of the country. Right. Um, okay. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, funny in like a really dark gallows humor. Song. Yes. I do that's, agree that's with what that. Um, and so, so you asked, how did that? Sorry. So from college, you know, because you seem really young. I don't know how old you mm-hmm. are, but you seem really young. So, um, and we're probably the same age and I consider myself young. Um, but, you know, from college, like, you know, you do this, do you find yourself in your studies like, writing about your own self or your own obstacles as a child? Like, is it coming out in your writing? Oh, yeah. Looking back, there's this play that basically I couldn't realize it at the time, but it was a little girl wandering the Egyptian desert looking for parents or someone to hug her, dealing with overwhelming memories that she couldn't figure out what to do with. And I didn't know it was about me. You didn't know that you were just – I was like kind of – I was writing – so what's interesting is, you know, you write what you know. So I was writing things that had happened to me, but I wasn't really connecting the dots about why it might be that I was writing these plays that were just exactly what I had gone through. And um, it it was several years later when I recognized that. Um, But, you know, the funny thing about – how I was treated and the people pleasing and the external validation is it got me really far. So you mentioned, you know, I'm on the younger side for somebody who like was vice president of talent development at Comedy Central. And the reason why is because the moment I got there, I was like, hustle, 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 climb, climb, climb. Doesn't matter what ladder, just keep climbing because that's where safety is. We got to find safety. And so I moved with incredible urgency. Every project was life or death and 10 out of 10 anxiety about work. And, you know, there were some really cool parts about that. You know, I got to know um, Keegan and Jordan really, really well, Key and Peele. I got to 
help and be a part of that project. And at night, I was imploding, using weed and booze and boys and all kinds of things to self-soothe and to cope because I had no coping mechanisms. So I was good at work, but bad at life. Was this all, I don't know where this was being recorded. Was this all in LA? Uh, Yes. So the show was taped in uh, Los Angeles. I lived in New York at the time and was bi-coastal actually until I moved to LA. Yeah. And that, and you know, I started this journey at 25. I was at Comedy Central. I wasn't an executive yet. I wasn't a 25 year old executive, but I was on the way, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And that was the turning point for me. Um, I, my 25th birthday, I drunk dialed my therapist, threatening to take my life. And she took it so seriously that she tried to find me. And the next morning, I just, as I played back her voicemails, because I had no recollection of calling her, I, I just realized if I don't save my life, there's not going to be much more of a life to live. And that's how we come to self-help. I never, ever was like, I want to be a self-help author. I was just trying to help myself, taking notes, writing the stories. You know, as you uh, mentioned, I went to school for playwriting and history, which are both Mm -hmm. about narrative. So at the time that all these things were happening, I was just writing about them. And, you know, fast forward five years later, I'm 30. And I felt like such a completely different person. I felt calm, calm and stable, which were two states I knew nothing about. They felt mystical, you know? Um, And that's when I realized, huh, I can't be alone in this. Even if people didn't have it this bad, maybe they had it much worse. Maybe they had, maybe they just had a shade of it. And I bet that this would be helpful. So here's my offering. And that's how it came to be. Because I never was like, I was going to be a Hollywood executive forever. I was going to like run a studio, you know, with a cigar in my mouth and all that. Um, But I just felt like if I had this thing and if I could have been helpful to little me, like if I could have at 25 handed myself something like this, it would have saved me a lot of time and given me a lot of company. So I wanted to be that for someone else. Do you think any part of your writing was also like writing to your sister? Hmm. Interesting. No, I don't. Because I really recognize that we all have our own stories and we Mm -hmm. all have the ways that we come to things. And with my sister, I try not to give her unsolicited advice. Like I know that's her biggest pet peeve of mine. So I've really backed off of, you know, uh, offering – and I really try to keep her out of both books, actually, because right. that's her life. Um, it's her story. It's her it. story. Yeah, completely. Right. So this is your second book, your first book, By Yourself, The Fucking Lilies, that came out in 2020. Yeah. Right at and the beginning of the pandemic. Hooray! Like February 2020, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, right in the beginning. So do you feel like you know, the person who wrote that had yet to go through a global pandemic. Yeah. So now looking back at that person who wrote this book and the person who wrote the, you know, your newest book. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the biggest differences between the two authors of those two books now? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question because I had to go through everything in Lily's 
you know, I was basically playing emotional whack-a-mole, filling in these different holes, like filling in for all these things I didn't learn to get me out of survival mode. That book is just want a bunch of tips on how to get out of survival mode that like are easy to implement, free. And like, I, I write everything in a like comedic style. Like mm-hmm. I feel like right now as we're talking, it sounds so heavy, but guarantee the book is not, you know. That's, oh, no, I like, think anyone listening, yeah, anyone listening can tell that you, you've got like a quirky <laughs> yeah. personality. Um, but like, so, do you feel like in that then, you know, it seems like you had to deconstruct everything that you were taught as a kid. Yeah, I had to reparent myself, which meant parent myself for the first time ever and unlearn. It was like unlearning and learning, you know, filling in for the – because what people forget about neglect is it's not just, you know, what's done to you. It's what you don't receive. You know, it's like all these lessons and love and things that I should have had as a child that I didn't. And so my first book is really just how do you get out of survival mode in a joyful, non-horrifically cheesy way? And once I was there, I was on my like good enough plateau. You know, I, I had a job that was so glamorous and fun, didn't wasn't quite what I wanted to be doing. And as I felt a little anxious about it, and I had relationships that were good enough, they weren't exactly what I wanted, but they were fine. And the, now the difference was because I had self-respect, things like that were where I was settling felt much worse. It felt much worse to settle or to not go after something that I needed or I knew to be more true about myself because I was in good shape. And so this next book at the you know, I lost my job. I was laid off from Comedy Central. It was the, you know, global pandemic, so everybody was laid off. I was alone without a partner, without parents. I don't talk to my mom. My dad is, you know, MIA. Um, My sister lives somewhere else. Like I was truly, I know everyone had it bad. If you had a house full of people, it wasn't great. You were were literally alone, but also figuratively alone. And that's that's a whole different thing, you know? And it was at that point where these traumas that were darker that I didn't want to deal with because I was on my good enough plateau and I'd already done so, so much work how could there possibly be any more work? Can't I just move on? That was sort of my feeling after Lily's. Okay, yeah, there's still some stuff, but look where I am now. Like, why? And why? It would be so painful to go back to these memories and these traumas. And so I couldn't escape them anymore. You know, they came bursting to uh, the surface and I realized – I need to know who I am when everything is taken away. I I need to know what I want and what is not just reacting to things that have happened to me. And I want okay. safety. I really wanted safety. To go back to buy yourself the fucking lilies. Yeah. What do you think? Um, what do you think were the hardest things to unlearn? and then relearn. Yeah. The hardest, they by far, in the subtitle to the whole book could be uh, how not to feel worthless. Mm. Because I was trapped in a constant diss track in my mind of you're worthless. You're not enough. You're not loved. Nobody cares about you. You're going to be abandoned. You're ugly. It was a 
the worst. It, it was a horrible kind of music to live your life to. And so I had to learn how to I call it my frenemy within. I had to learn how to make peace with that frenemy. So that was sort of, you know, making up for how I got there and then actually proactively learn how to value myself and how to see myself as worthy. So then in Glow in the Fucking Dark, our newest book, as a reminder, you can pre-order it. Link in the show notes. Don't forget to follow Tara Schuster as well. In your latest book, you know, we're now on the second part of the lesson. Yeah. Uh, what do you, like, you know, I think I have learned over time that my followers really love a good listicle. So mm. what is the listicle in this book? You mean, like, what is the book in list form? Or yeah, like, mean? for instance, like, here are the top three things, ah, blank. So I got to give you two listicles because okay. of how I break it down, you know. So for me, it really was I need to recover my soul. That, so that's the project of the second book. Mm -hmm. I need to find my soul within myself, uh, the, the part of me that is undamaged from all of this. So I started, it was, I did everything in my power to heal. So that means um, journaling, meditation, EMDR therapy, and I can tell stories about all of these things. Um, I would love to learn about all three. Yeah. So, so I love yeah. journaling. I suggest that to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, tell me a little more about how you journal. Yeah. I want to learn more about how you meditate, but I definitely want to learn more about EDMR because you're not the first person. Yeah. It's having to, a moment. To, it's really having a moment and it's yeah. like, it's really crazy. So in like a positive way, I'm saying. Right. Uh, I'm, it's crazy. The moment is crazy. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about journaling. So do you journal every night, every day, every week, every birthday? Like what's the, yeah. what's, the what's the ritual here? So, you know, with journaling, it's obviously a thing that's been around forever. Um, and I've been journaling for the past 12 years every day in the morning. Um, but the reason I journal has really changed. In the beginning, it was just to get self-aware of what my issues were. Now it's to find safety because growing up in a house that was – so my house was also an open construction site. Because my mom hastily ordered a remodel of the whole house while we were out of town. We come back to town and realize, oh, you don't have any permits for any of this. So instead of, you know, reverting, going back, patching up, if you walked by a wall, you could get a nasty splinter. The ceilings were just open. Um Nobody want. I was. I didn't want anyone to come to my house, and nobody wanted to come to my house. You know, it was physically unsafe environment. My parents. Um, the mantra my mom gave me every day was, um, "You need to be careful. You could be kidnapped by rapists and murderers. So they're going to snatch you. So be careful." And when I say every day, I mean every day. I, that's what I thought the world was. Uh, that I was. I was going to be taken. My dad was always stressed out about money. This is like my basic first memories of him are we're doomed. This is a catastrophe. We're never going to make it out of this debt. So, so if we had a pyramid here of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah, our, our, you're the biggest foundation of that pyramid is just not even there. It's, it's no, just, no, no, no. It was not It's there. got splinters. <laughs> exactly. And so I knew that I, well, I'll actually pivot so that's that's where I was, right? Mm -hmm. And 
So I would go on these like crazy expeditions and adventures to a slot canyon. I love to hike. So to a slot canyon, an Escalante staircase that's down a road so bleak that it is called Hole in the Rock. It's like desolate. And there was a slot canyon. I really wanted to hike. I didn't have anyone to hike with me. I decided, ma, I can do it. I can handle it. And as I'm on this hike, I'm feeling 10 out of 10 anxiety. But for me, that's normal. Like that's just how I live my life with my body feeling unsafe, with my mind scared. That's just my reality. And it wasn't until on a trip to Zion, I overheard a family that was a dad, mom, two kids. And the dad was explaining to his children that they were going to go canyoneering. And he said, you know, I've never done it before. I don't know how to do it. It might be scary, but I've hired a guide who's done this hundreds of times. So you will always be safe. We're always going to make sure you're safe. So even if you're scared and it was like, mind blown, parents tell their children they're going to be safe. They make an environment where their child's going to be safe. I I had no idea. And so I went to my friends and I said, wait a minute, did your parents tell you you were safe? And do you tell your children they're safe? And and do you go out of your way to make things safe? They were like, uh, duh, number one responsibility. And so I realized, okay, I need to find internal safety because I don't want to live this way. It's possible not to live scared. And I turned to my journal of all places for safety because that is a place that is not for anyone else. It is for me. The words and emotions don't leap off the page and murder me. Like they can be contained in one place. But are you giving yourself like prompts or like how how yeah. are you journaling? So two different ways. So I typically um, – I was very influenced by Julia Cameron and The Artist's Way. So I began with Morning Pages, which is just three – Um, pages of brain dump. Just everything you're thinking. Don't stop. Just keep going. I do that a lot. Um, You do this in the morning? Yeah. First thing when I wake up. Is there a reason why you do it in the morning instead of at night? Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. I recommend the morning because typically people put it off if they don't do it first thing. It's like a real, okay, you want to do this? You want to build a habit? Do it first thing. Like, you know, so that's one reason. It's just an easier habit. But you're fresh. Nothing has happened in your day. Nobody has affected you. you. You're the narrator. You're the pure narrator right there. So that's why I recommend the morning. I'm experimenting now after 12 years of that, experimenting with night journaling, which I'm mm-hmm. kind of learning about. Um, so sometimes it's just totally like free thoughts, which I highly, highly recommend because so many of us have the inner frenemy within that critic totally. who's like, you're not as good as all that. Like, you know. Um, and so even seeing that on the page gets you more and more self-aware. And by having to write three pages, you can sometimes just bust through the front of me within. Um, but yeah, I ask myself prompts. I, uh, one of my biggest prompts is, how do I feel today? Because most of us only know the emotions, bad, good, busy, tired. 
Those are like the four emotions we all know. And then it's basically none of the other ones exist. Mm -hmm. And so I developed an emotion wheel, which readers can get in the book, um, to actually find the vocab. Am I anxious or am I angry as hell because my boyfriend just broke into my phone to change the read receipt setting? Like, because some we don't know. I feel anxious. I feel anxious about him. Or do I feel angry and violated? And if it's angry and violated, I can do something about it. You know, there's some, there's an action I can take, which is to tell him, to protect myself, to build a boundary. If I'm just blanket anxious, it doesn't feel like there's much to be done. So my number right. one prompt, and it sounds so silly, but it changes daily. It's a forever prompt, is how do I actually feel um, and the emotion wheel that I developed, I mean, I've studied all of this, you know, it's, I write yeah. about it in a fun, fun way, but it is backed by different modes of therapy. I've had so many therapists and like world-class leaders read this book and give me notes because I didn't want to say something that was irresponsible. Oh basically. yeah. The jacket of your book has like <laughs> some yeah. pretty big names. I was like, damn girl. Okay. Go Tara. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so yeah. So then tell me now about meditation. How often do you meditate? So I meditate every day. Um, I try, or I would say I try to, I probably succeed five of seven days um, with, with like a formal practice. I try to do it throughout the day. Um, and the reason, first off, let me say, I hate meditation. I think it's oh my God, so annoying. I feel it's the I most can't. annoying. And like, why do they make the words so like obscure? Like, find your seat. Like, do you mean my butt? Like, I should sit on my right. butt. Is that what you're trying to say to me? Find your anchor. Well, what is I that? I really struggle. Like, I'm. I cannot wait yeah. for you to tell me more about how you meditate. And I'm holding my breath because it's like, I suck at meditating. Well, here's the thing. You probably don't. But the way that meditation has been explained is a farce. It's like it, it is crazy what people say meditation is versus what it is. You know, uh, you've definitely heard, let your mind go blank. That I don't know how to do that. The, that well, I, that's, I, I really – I mean, that's why know, I don't do yoga. <laughs> do you know that the only people whose minds can go blank, you know who they are? Dead people? Dead people. They are and corpses. <laughs> I don't think lawyers – but I do I'm think not lawyers, corpses. liars, liars, oh, liars. I mean, uh, same word, same thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't cancel me, attorneys. <laughs> um, no. Uh, yeah. No. I. Uh, so is that not med? So meditating is not turning off your brain. No, absolutely not. So I began with you know I hate meditators. Why don't they get off their cushions and do something? Do they not notice that the world is on fire? And I hate their patchouli scented pretension. I hateful is the right word until a good friend of mine, you know, I was looking for emo emotional regulation, basically, like how do I handle my feelings of overwhelm? Now, you know, now that I'm safe and I can see that they're there, what do I do with them? And she thought this would be that meditation would be a good tool. So I went on a meditation retreat. Of course, I, you know, hadn't successfully meditated for 10 minutes decided to be in silence for five days. Like it was like, wait, yes. stop. you went to a silent retreat? Yes. 
So I went from no, I, I can't I, do the this. idea of that. It was disgusting me- to me. I. But because I'm, um, I love external validation. I thought this is how I'm going to win at meditation. Like if I do it the hardest core possible way, then I I win something. Where did you go? Where was this? Um, what state or California? California. California. Uh, yeah. Did they at least have like spa facilities? Like, were you in the sauna or pool? No, that's not. What? Well, I let me. I can tell you a little bit more about what it you know includes. It's basically eight hours a day. Wake up at 5.30, eight hours a day, you're doing different practices, different kinds of meditation practices in silence. Um, like sound therapy? No, like straight up, here I am sitting and meditating. And sometimes with instruction, like sometimes the, the teacher will give you instructions about how to meditate, different practices. Sometimes with nothing, just a bell Why ringing. Is my chest so well, let me tight right now. I'm but like, but stick so with me. Anxious. Hold yeah, my no, hand no, through I'm, this. I'm listening to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just I just I just expressing. Like, yeah, look at, I'm you're so like, soothing myself. <laughs> I have my hand on my chest, and I'm like, <gasps> yeah. It's, okay, it sounds me, horrible. Tara, Tara, like walk me through this. Yeah, okay. it sounds terrible. The worst of all is a walking meditation, which is you. Each step takes like a count of three, like toes, heel, like it's maddening so that within like a few minutes, you've only gone like a foot, right? And it's because you're supposed to be present. I, you know, for me, it was driving me batty. And so at the end of this week, I was just a total mess. I was like... First off, I can't meditate. I can't pay attention for more than the count of one, two. After that, I'm out. Quiet. I can't talk to anybody. I can't order takeout. I can't use my phone. phone? Oh no! So no phones. (gasps) No phones. No outside contact. No talking. No looking other people in the eyes. Were there any cute guys? Oh, what? What? Which. Because part of it is that you're diving inward, and so you don't want to be um, you don't want to be participating in any social niceties, like civility, that kind of stuff, like social contract with everybody. No, and th- and as horrible as that sounds, it actually ends up being freeing because everybody's doing it, so it feels like a community thing. That's so sure. that one how in particular. People, how many people were there? This was, I don't know, 12 or 15. Is it like cohorts? Like you all start the same day or is it every yes. day? You're with the and same then- group. And so by the end of this, I was hallucinating. I was like thinking that I was hearing things like this is crazy. And I, 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 I really did think I heard the voice of God telling. When they give you instructions. Are they telling you this or are, they, are you reading it off a board or something? They tell you. They speak. Oh, they speak. Okay. Yeah, they tell you. What and are they wearing? Clothes. Like, like white clothes, not... cream colored clothes, no, gray clothes. They're just normal people. They're not Were like you allowed to wear clothing that had writing on it. Like yes, there was no. There's no anything. You'd be just be comfortable. Uh-huh. Um, and but you can understand why I'm asking these questions. Yeah, right? like... yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And so I'm freaking out, crying. I think I heard the voice of God. What's happening? Like to the uh, – it was a Jewish meditation retreat. So crying to the rabbi because this was my 15 minutes to speak. And he's like, okay, cool. We can talk about you talking to God, but you seem overwhelmed. <laughs> 
like, can we talk about that first? And I was like, why? Like, I'm fine. I hustle through everything. It's fine. Don't you want to talk about this big, important moment in my life? Um, and he basically taught me how to ground myself. You know, like, can you feel your feet on the floor? Can you notice a, anything pleasant? Is there anything pleasant in addition to how you feel right now? And yes, there was a giant sprawling tree outside the window. And with practice, kind of what I learned is that no one moment, and he would say this, is solid. It contains like when I'm at my peak overwhelmed, I still have an amazing cup of tea by my side. I still have my incredible relationship with my sister. And we forget because we get so swept away by whatever this distraction is, we forget what reality is. We, we think reality is purely the negative. And so with meditation, I don't think of it as a way to find joy. I don't think of it as a way to clear your mind. Um, in fact, when your mind wanders, the, the lesson there is to realize that it wandered and come back. That's meditation, the coming back. And so when people get so frustrated, I can't, oh. I can't pay attention. I can't, you know, let my mind go blank. I'm thinking about my laundry list. Laundry list to back is the thing. So you are doing it right. Okay. The trick is practice like anything and self-compassion, not beating yourself over the head with how terrible you are at something. And that's why I hate how meditation is explained to most people as some way – it's not even spiritual. Like it's it's how to learn how to come back and not get so distracted and overwhelmed by all of your feelings. And this – I appreciate your explanation of this and I think yeah. that's really great. Do you – um do you want to share where you did your silent retreat at in case I don't want to get yes. bombarded with Yes. So now where I go, it's called Or Halev, and it's a Jewish organization run by Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels, M-A – I can't spell anything. Just Google Or yeah. H Halev, Or Halev. And, you know, I do it in a Jewish tradition, um, which isn't super religious. It's basically just their – the lessons of Judaism, and there actually are many meditation practices within Judaism. Um, but Tara Brock is another incredible, if you're just starting out, just get her podcast and meditate with her that way. She also has a half day silent retreat that's free and, and online if you just want to mm -hmm. tip your, your toes in. I would just say whenever you're like, I'm doing it wrong, remember this whole point is to come back to self. So actually right. I'm doing it 1000% perfectly because I'm just coming back. That's all. That's all it is. I love that. And then the third way you have learned to keep yourself safe yeah. and build those coping mechanisms is EMDR. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. And this one is more, you know, choose your own adventure, what kind of therapy you go to. But what I realized, I'd been in therapy for a decade um, or maybe 20 years if, if I was actually to be honest with you about how long I had been trying to do all this. And I just kept feeling bad. Like it was good to tell someone how I felt, but often when I would talk about a memory, I would feel overwhelmed about it. And now I'm just sobbing and nothing has changed. I still feel bad about the memory. EMDR and trauma-based therapies 
are not about insight. So when you go lay on a sofa, talk to your therapist, tell a story, that's about insight and patterns. What insights can the therapist have? What insights can you have? What meaning are you making of all this? EMDR is going back to the trauma itself and helping your brain heal from that, which sounds Looney Tunes, not real, um, but is actually used by the Department of Defense and um, the Department of Veteran Affairs for PTSD. Well-studied, well-documented, and they do it, and this sounds crazier still, by, it's called bilateral stimulation. So sometimes it's just sweeping your eyes from one side of a wall to the other to the sound of a metronome um and your therapist walks you through it but but you're not looking for meaning in fact i had one trauma one of my biggest traumas was i had a friend breakup a couple years ago and she haunted me she was like in my nightmares i thought about her every day i couldn't stop talking to her about with my friends i was like constantly crying So I wanted to heal this. And I said to my therapist, but at the end, you have to give me the insights. You got to tell me the story and about what it all means and why she did it and why I reacted. You need to tell me. She was like, okay, we'll see if you actually want that by the time you're done with this. And basically, they, you're doing this bilateral stimulation and she is asking you questions about associations that come up in your brain things that you're thinking about. And I don't understand the science of all this, but it um, you're bringing down your level of reaction. So they ask scale of one to seven, seven being this is completely overwhelming. How overwhelmed are you until you get the scale to zero, until that no longer affects you that way. And sure enough, I didn't give a damn about the story. I didn't, I was like, whatever, that's beside the point. it it hurt me. Great. But I don't need to understand her. I don't understand me. The trauma itself is healed. So I just encourage people to, there's other, there are alternatives. It's not just talk therapy. And when you're finding a therapist, interview them, call like three people, ask them about their practices, ask them about what a treatment plan is, because therapy is not supposed to be a forever thing, right? Like, How are we going to address these things? It is okay to ask those questions. And if if a therapist refuses to answer, they're not the therapist for you. So I think knowing just that there are very studied other approaches to therapy and that you can always ask questions of your therapist is a better way to find a fit. And I hope I didn't lose you with I ha- EMDR is hard no, to explain. I, so I hope I my brain is tingling. I'm gonna totally message you after this and be like, I need names, I need links, I need Oh, I got you. What I love about listening to other because you're the third person that's talking to me about their EMDR experience in the last three weeks. Yeah. Which first of all, what a privilege to hear someone else's experience, right? Like I feel very honored and I assume so do all my listeners. But I see how it helps. Yeah. Like I see that it works. I'm a different person. And I think that's <laughs> excellent. Like one of my girlfriends, um, she she was raised by 
her parents were survivors of the Holocaust mm. and, you know, that comes with its own trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're traumatized, you might have provide a very traumatic environment for your kids. And she said that she went to therapy for 20 years and the only thing that helped her get past whatever traumatic experience she had in childhood was EMDR. And Be- I was like, she, she, I was like, wow, like that's, that's insane to me. It's because you're healing the trauma, not all the symptoms, right? You're not like... The trauma made you act in this pattern, right? Right. We're not fixing the pattern. We're fixing the trauma. Tara, are you excited about your book coming out in a few more weeks? I am ecstatic. I am over the moon, thrilled, excited for it to come out. Link is in the show notes. Go pre-order Glow in the Fucking Dark, Simple Practices to Heal Your Soul by Tara Schuster. Tara, thank you again for coming to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast and sharing your truth and your story. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. And for my listeners, as I mentioned, you know, links in the show notes. And of course, if you want to work with me and my team, uh, there's links in the show notes for that too. Don't forget to subscribe to ask a matchmaker on Instagram. And of course, matchmaker Marie on Instagram. And of course, our guest, Tara Suster on Instagram. Check out the links in the show notes. Be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. See you next week.